Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. So we're in a series called To Be Family. We're going to be spending, have been spending actually the summer months talking about what does it mean to be part of a local church? Why is it that, especially here at Covenant, when we talk about the church, we use that metaphor family. It's the most often invoked metaphor that we use. Uh, why is that? Why do we think it's important to think of your church relationship as sort of your extended family beyond your own family? And last week, we began a, a deeper dive within that series to talk about specifically the issue of church leadership. And so today we're going to continue that deeper dive. Uh, last week we talked about the character of leaders from 1 Timothy 3. What does God expect from those, specifically who will be pastors and shepherds of the local church? Today we're going to continue with this question. What is it that pastors ought to be doing exactly? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I suspect a lot of them would go up if I said, how many of you really have no clue what we do, right? And that's kind of dangerous, really. Uh, I don't know. The older I get, the more I, really the less people that I preach to uh, are aware of who Louis Grizzard was. Anybody know who Louis Grizzard was? See, it's just, it, this is so sad. You're such de deprived people. Uh, former columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, died many, many years back, uh, I, I believe from cancer, but he was a humorist, comedian, and it was Louis Grizzard who always wanted to be a journalist, actually, but he said by his own testimony, my mama wanted me to be a pastor. And my response to mama was, I don't want to be no pastor. You only work one day a week. You got this big old book to go by. That's not a challenging job at all. Now, I would imagine he's probably not the only one who said such things. In fact, when I was nine years old, I said to my pastor, this is a guy named Bill Cashin. He's still around. He's in his late 70s now, retired, godly man, led me to Jesus. I'm standing in front of you today because of Bill Cashin. And I looked at him as a nine-year-old boy, and I said, you know, I think I might want to be a preacher one day like you when I grow up, but I'm going to buy a store and run that during the week so I'll have something to do. And that statement has come back to haunt me. Every once in a while, I'll look at my cell, and it's Bill. And you know the first question he asked me? How's that store going? He's never let me live that down. It's been uh, nearly four decades now. I want to be a preacher. So this week, we want to continue this focus um, because there isn't really what you would call unanimous agreement among Christians on what a guy in my line of work ought to be doing with his time. And, and when there is a lack of clarity about someone's responsibility, those responsibilities, well, two things can happen. On the one hand, you can get a lazy pastor who maybe only works one day a week. We, we try to screen those guys out. I'm telling you, when we hire here for staff, it's amazing the stack of resumes we get of guys that once we complete the behavioral part of the assessment interview, we come to understand God hasn't called them to anything. They just looked at this work from the outside and said, hey, it's indoors, no heavy lifting. You know, maybe this is for me. So on the one hand, you can have that. On the other hand, you can have a church that sets expectations on its leaders that are virtually impossible. Represented, I think, in this satirical ad that came out some years ago that said, wanted pastor. He speaks for only 20 minutes, but 30, yeah, 
Good luck with that one for me. He speaks for only 20 minutes. It should come up about any time now, yet thoroughly expounds on the Word of God. He tells it like it is, but never hurts anybody's feelings. The work hours are 8 a.m. until 10 p.m., seven days a week, but he does not neglect his family. He is 26 years old and has been preaching for three decades. I'm going to let everybody think about that one for a minute. He has a burning desire to work with teens. Some of the school teachers we just prayed for said, this sounds like an expectation on me. Yeah, I know there's a lot of that going around these days. He has a burning desire to work with teens and spends all of his time with the older people. He makes 15 calls a day to church members, is constantly sharing the gospel with unbelievers and active in the community and is never out of the office. All right? Now, that was meant to be funny for years. That was meant to be funny. But the truth is, being a pastor and an elder has gotten more complicated. Now, that's true, really, especially in the world of the last three years. It's true of a lot of different professions. It's true of police officers, to be sure. It's true of teachers. It's, it's true of a lot of different ones. But we're, we're really no exception to that rule. Our work has become much more complicated, which means it's healthy for us together to go back to Scripture. Let's see what God's Word tells us about this. And we're going to start with our working definition. Again, we, we've been putting this up every week throughout this series. The local church, this is our definition, is an identifiable community. Yeah, it's not that one. It's in, There you go. Of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And then we give you the rest of the definition, which includes this. In obedience to Scripture, they gather together regularly under the authority of qualified leadership. That's the phrase that we're going to stop on for about the the next two weeks now and really drill down on. Who are these leaders? What qualifies these leaders? We tried to answer that second question last week out of 1 Timothy 3, the character set that's qualified. Well, today we're going to explore more deeply the question of who were these men in the first century? How did the New Testament understand this office? And, and how should that inform what we should expect out of men like this in the 21st century? What should they be doing? So there's three groups of people I'm aiming at today. First is, is the whole church, obviously, because we need to know. So often there is a veil between guys like us and people like you that just simply shouldn't be there. There's a mystery. And when we pull back the curtain, we go, oh my goodness, I had no idea. That really shouldn't be there. There really should be no mystery to what people that you expect to lead you should be expected to do. Those expectations ought to be clear and they ought to be driven by Scripture. So the whole church is my first target. That's an easy one, right? I'm just like throwing an arrow into the broad side of a barn. Second is our present elders, the eight other guys who serve with me, both those on staff and those who volunteer their time. And that should be for obvious reasons. Let's have a refresher course, guys, while we're all here together into what we're supposed to be doing. What is our job? But then my third target is our future elders. And I'm going to tell you why. Between last week and this week, I believe with all my heart that God is going to call some men to this task among us. I believe that. And we're going to have a way for you to answer that today. In fact, in your seat back, there's this blue card that's there. It's just a normal response card. But if at the end of this time together, you feel God leading you to have a conversation, I just want you to write pastor on the back of that card, just anywhere, fold it up, put it in the offering plate. The office staff will be the only people to see it. They will send it directly to me. And you and I will have a personal conversation together. And as I shared with you last week, I'm not going to try to sell you a timeshare, okay? Okay. This is not high pressure. In fact, 
We'll have a serious conversation about whether or not you really might fit into some of this. We have a residency that's beginning in about a month where we're going to be taking guys through for about a, about a year. Sunday nights, about an hour and a half, we're going to talk about this. We're going to train you so that you could effectively and competently shepherd a group of God's people. We're going to invest heavily in you. You're going to get a library of books. You're going to get all kinds of resources and with no expectation whatsoever on the other end. We're not expecting you to necessarily commit to anything, nor should you expect that we're going to automatically put you into a high-level ecclesial office simply because you checked a bunch of boxes, okay? So that's what's coming. That's your opportunity. I would love to put two or three more guys into that lineup uh, to, as, as we start building this cohort and, and really kind of looking forward to what God has for us, all right? So just hang on to that blue card and pray with me through this. I really believe with all my heart God's going to call some new ones out and, and begin that process. But I think you need to do it with both eyes open. You need to do it both ways. You ever been sold on something? Speaking of timeshares. Right. Where's our military people at? Yeah, they promised you a steak dinner every night. They promised you. My favorite one is the Navy guys. Uh, my, my, I had a when I was a freshman in college, not, not, not because you're the best branch. I don't want to, I'm sorry, I don't want to start an intramural fight here. I'm, I'm just saying the best stories come from the Navy. My, my, one of my freshman uh, level professors uh, was a Navy guy. And, and he said, my big mistake was falling for this idea that the recruiter told me. He said, if you'll join the Navy, you'll see the world. And I forgot that three quarters of it was water right? So if you've ever been oversold on something and then you finally get the product, you finally get the experience, you're like, that, that's really, that, that's the last thing in the world I want to do. So I want to answer three questions this morning. Who are these men? What are they supposed to be doing and why? Okay. So let, let's start with the first question. Who are these men? Verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. All right, so there, there's several words that are used here, specifically three, elder, shepherd, and overseer. Now, all three of those are used in other places in the New Testament by themselves, and in most cases when they're used, they're talking about a particular function. So for example, several weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 4, and we talked about the five-fold ministry of the church, that everybody in here is at least one or maybe some combination of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, because that passage isn't talking about holding an ecclesial office. That passage is talking about your gift mix. And so it really doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. There, there is a gift mix that you have, and some of you are gifted as shepherds. Some of you have gifts in administration. Some of you have incredible spiritual maturity. That doesn't necessarily mean you're called to this office, but you may be exercising one of those gifts for the benefit of the body. But in this passage, in this weird kind of a way, Peter uses all of these terms interchangeably to describe a singular office that by this point had grown to be very, very common in all of the churches in Asia. So those three words are as follows, starting with the word elder. Elder speaks of maturity. That seems to make sense, right? If someone gets older, they should be more mature. Now, emphasis on the word should be, okay? Just because you're old doesn't mean you're mature. In fact, one of the saddest things I've ever seen is someone who is post-Medicare eligible who's still in their diapers spiritually. 
even though they've been a follower of Jesus supposedly for years and years, and maybe you're one of those baby boomers that bought into this consumeristic Christianity and the only thing you've ever done your whole life is consume, 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 and now here you are still pooping your pants spiritually in your 70s, right? That, that's sad. But it is also true, generally speaking, that someone in their 60s who's been following Jesus faithfully for 40 years is going to be more mature than someone who's only been doing it five years and still in his late 20s or, or his early 30s. But the issue here is, is your level of maturity commensurate? Are we beginning to see the level of maturity not only, not only happen, but rise to a level that's noticeable? among the body of Christ. So elder simply speaks of spiritual maturity. Then there's the word shepherd. This speaks of the responsibility, which is especially interesting when you consider the larger context of 1 Peter. These are, these are people that Peter describes as elect exiles. So they have been scattered and marginalized and relegated outside the mainstream. And here's what Peter reminds. By the way, this is a good little side note for this message. If you feel right now in the culture like the world is turning upside down, like there are institutions that you could count on that you can't trust anymore, like, you, man, where do I put my feet firmly? God uses troublesome times like the ones we've been in for the last three years to remind you that ultimately it is only his kingdom through the local church where you will perpetually find that solid ground. That's the only place you'll find it. And so shepherds are given to the body because God wants these elect exiles to be reminded, hey, he's given you community, all right? When your political allegiances let you down, when your institutions let you down, when society seems to marginalize you, God has given you community and he's given you leaders over that community whose responsibility it is to guide you. Which is another way of saying, to use the agricultural analogy that Peter that uses here, God's people are like sheep. Now that's, you know, I just finished talking about how much smarter so many of you are than me in so many areas, science and technology and education and healthcare and all these other, but, but generally speaking, when the Bible uses the metaphor of sheep, that's, that's not really a compliment. Here, here's basically what he's saying, because sheep are naturally wayward, all right? They go right off here. They're naturally prone to attack from predators, and they are naturally stubborn. And I have known you for almost seven years, and you're not that way at all. <laughs> now, here, here's what Peter's saying. They have to be led. And here's the good news. Right? In case you're sitting there going, is, did the Bible just call me stupid? Here's what the Bible says about you. That you as a sheep, as a part of the bride of Christ, are of such inestimable value to your chief shepherd that he has given you under shepherds to guide you. He values you that much. That's what Peter is saying here. And that's the responsibility. Good leadership is evidence of God's love for us. That's what he's talking about. So elder is maturity, shepherd, responsibility. Finally, there's this word overseer. That's where this level of authority is, is intimated. Because you, you can't lead by having, by also, without also having some sort of authority. But, but here's the thing. That, that authority is not inherent. It's tied to something else. Even Peter himself says, my authority is tied to a witness of the sufferings, everything about him that carries even apostolic authority is tied to Jesus. 
And Jesus is revealed to us in his word, which means if you have a spiritual leader, if it's me, if it's somebody else, if it's one of our deacons, whoever it is, every ounce of spiritual authority they have is derived. What does that mean? Well, it means it's not inherent. It's not inherent with me. I grew up, like many of you, in Appalachia, except I didn't grow up in the northern end of Appalachia. We call y'all Yankees where I come from, I'm just, just so you know. Um, down on the southern end of that same mountain range where I grew up, very similar culture to the one that you will find here with all of the great things about that culture, strong Protestant work ethic, love for neighbor, commitment to family, all those things that I love, things that, things that the Christian faith would commend, uh, but also with, a, with just a tinge of isolationism, maybe just a tad bit of cultural paranoia, I'm not hurting your feelings, am I? Right? And, but, but within that, there was this great reverence and respect for spiritual authority. And I can remember people actually saying, when I was younger, you don't question the preacher. Ever? No, you don't do that. And oftentimes you'd hear passages like the 105th Psalm cited. Don't touch my anointed. So I'm going to clear that up for you right now, okay? No spiritual authority has authority that is inherent in the person where they can self-referentially and cyclically just refer back to themselves as if they can self-declare that they're your authority and then that obligates you to submit to them. Does that make sense? You can't. And if you have a spiritual authority that claims such, run. All right? Because most of them, and this is where some of y'all get mad at me because I'm going to call out some of the people that you may be your fanboys of, most of them are in that prosperity gospel nonsense, which means they don't even use the Bible. All right? And the parts of the Bible they use, they twist, and they pervert it, and there's just nothing like the authority that they say. And, and, and that's the reason they do it. You're like, well, wait a minute. Is that really true? Don't you question me. I'm God's man. I'm the anointed one. Yeah, well, that's what you say if the gospel you preach can't be found in God's word. And you can't find Kenneth Copeland's gospel in the Bible. You can't find Paula White's gospel in the Bible. Y'all still with me? right? That authority is not inherent. It doesn't cycle by. I don't get to self-declare. That authority is derived. It comes from another source, and that source is the Word of God. So how does that factor in? Well, there is authority given to the pastoral office, but it is connected inextricably and irreversibly to the word of God. We see this elsewhere, by the way, in the, in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells his young protege, who is a pastor, watch your life and doctrine closely. You pay attention to yourself first. And then here comes the promise. You will save yourself and your people. What, what's, what's the assumption there? It means I, I need to be saved too. It's not just, well, I got to bring you guys along. No, no, I I need the gospel. I need salvation. I need to be sanctified. I need the influence and the the power of the Holy Spirit because my authority as a pastor is derived. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Notice this. There's a Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter. He wrote a book in the 17th century called The Reformed Pastor. The whole thing, and it's like 300 pages, is based off of this one text. 
Keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Guess what half that book is about? Keep watch over yourselves, okay? This is why you don't just, well, I'm just called to ministry, okay. Or you sit in an ordination council, and you're like, well, what if we decided you're not quite ready? Well, I'll preach anyway. And we rejoice at that as though there's not some kind of outside authority from which my authority is derived. Okay? We have to do this right. Acts 17, the Bereans, after hearing Paul, you know what they did? They searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Why did they do that? Because they understood, like you and I all need to understand, that a pastor's authority is not inherent. It's derived from another source. And if he departs from that source, the authority goes away. All right? That's, that's what Scripture's teaching us here. And so elders, overseers, pastors, all together describe one office. These are people that God has called out from his church and appointed them to lead his church by taking responsibility for his church and doing it wearing his authority. Okay, This is why we saw last week, godly character is so important. When we're looking at this, that's why we want to take time. Paul told Timothy, don't be in, in a big hurry. So I mean it when I say we're not trying to pressure you. We're not trying to, we're going to be very, very careful for the sake of the body. But if you feel called to this, we want to talk to you in a very low-pressure kind of environment, godly character. It's one, it's one of the first things that the world often looks for in a leader, charisma, popularity, getting things done, pragmatism, are the absolute last things that God's people are supposed to concern themselves with when they're making a determination as to whether God has called someone to lead them. This is who they are. All right, Who are pastors? Peter just told you. And hopefully you, you see now why, why we need your prayers for this work. Here's the second question. What do they do? Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So let's, let's take these in reverse order. Let's start with the phrase exercise oversight. As I said, there's an authority that's granted and, and should be granted to the men who occupy this office. We're, we're not, that's another way of saying we're not a democracy here. Right? We're not a democracy. This is where in the free world, oftentimes when we don't trust institutions or we don't trust people or something seems fishy, all of a sudden we call for transparency. Well, well transparency, generally speaking, is a good thing. It, it's a good thing. But hopefully you've got sense enough to know that not everything is a matter of transparency. Not everything can be talked about openly. Not everything can be adjudicated. A few things happened in the news this week. I don't know if you've noticed or not. And it's being adjudicated all over the place, right? And depending on if you're left or the right, you, you've, you, you already made up your mind what it was going to be. And I've had people ask me, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I, I'm in the cheap seats, the peanut gallery. I don't know. I'm also not a lawyer. Most of you aren't either. Might be something good to keep in mind, okay? I have a PhD, and some of that language makes me go, right, when I read that stuff. So I don't know. It's okay to say I don't know. It's okay to say, you know, I, I may have an opinion one way or another about a personality or about a thing, but I just, I, I'm in the cheap seats. I don't know. I have to trust that there's, there's other people that are going to work this out and figure this out. 
And one of the ways I do that is by admitting the, the sheer number of things that I don't have control over that I'm just going to have to be okay with. Some of y'all will live 20 years past the time you're going to live right now if you just realize that. I'm just saying you just wouldn't have such fits. That's another sermon for another day, right? So we, we can't discuss any and every decision we make as a congregation. I, I, I served 500-plus congregations for about 11 years. I remember going into one in Baltimore. I won't tell you where it was or who they were because they were really sweet people, and it was obvious they loved Jesus. They were having their, their yearly business meeting where they talked about their budget. And if you don't have it yet, it's coming this coming week to your inbox. All right? And we're, we're going to vote on that in just a couple of weeks, the 2022-2023 annual budget. We've got some great news to share with you in regard to that and, and all of that stuff. But this church was, was voting on its budget. And they, for 45 minutes, discussed how to allocate $100. Right? Like, I'm, I'm sitting in the back. I'm not a member of this church, so I can't be. I had been invited, and they said, you know, after the meeting, we want, to come, we want you to speak with us about some things that are going on in the denomination, which I was happy to do. Only 45 minutes later, I was wishing they had asked me to speak first because nothing makes me want to stick a lit cigarette in my own eye <laughs> like minutia like that. It just makes me nuts. $100? Like... It's the Spirit of God that prevented me from going, I'll write a check right now if y'all just hush. Right? Just hush. It's a hundred. Like, every little bitty, like, like we, we can't be micromanaging all that stuff, especially not at the congregational level. We're going to keep you in the loop on the big stuff, but if you voted on everything, if you delegated everything to a committee, which, by the way, y'all know what the technical definition of a committee is? It's a group that gets together, talks about nothing, does nothing so that they conclude that nothing can be done, right? If, if, we, if that's what we do, we, we never go anywhere. And, and because some things just can't be discussed in front of the whole church, the reason is because our responsibility is to shepherd the flock of God. So there's oversight given so that the flock can be adequately shepherded. Our authority is not for us. That's why Paul warns Timothy against appointing elders in the church that are greedy. There's more than one kind of greed. You can be greedy for money, but you can also be greedy for power. You can be greedy for influence. You can be greedy for an agenda. Our agenda is to move the people of God toward the Son of God to accomplish the mission of God. Pastors exist for the benefit of the congregation. And just like your doctor, just like your attorney, just like anybody else in your life, sometimes that means we're going to tell you things you'd rather not hear for the good of your own soul. Pastoring a church, the closest analogy I can come to to, to describe it, it, it's a lot like air traffic control, okay? Air traffic control, it's those guys and ladies in the tower, and they are aware of all the airplanes in the air and what trajectory they're headed on. And they, their job is to coordinate all of that. I don't know if this will be scary to some of you, especially if you're flying out tomorrow morning, but it was just interesting to me. I just ran the stats on this. On any given day, there are between 40 and 45,000 flights every day over the continental United States. Did you know that? And at any given time, when you look up at the sky, whether you see it or not, there are between 77 and 7,800 planes up there at the same time. Does that freak you out a little bit? Because it did me. It did me, because I was on two, two planes this week. 
And I'm thinking, boy, we're putting a lot of trust in those air traffic controllers, aren't we? Because what do they do? They got to know where everybody is. They've got to get everybody safely where they're going as much as they can with the storms and everything else that's going on around. There was a storm in Nashville where I left Wednesday night and a storm here. So I was hours late getting here, getting home Wednesday night. So there's things even air traffic controllers can't control. But the ultimate goal is what? Let's get them safely on the ground, on the tarmac, and to their destinations without them crashing into each other. That's what air traffic controllers do. Pastoring a church is just like air traffic control if 15% of the pilots in the air were drunk. Okay? That, that's what it is. Because what are you doing? You're, well, you're, you're hearing people's stories, kind of like from the tower to the cockpit. What's going on up there? How can we be of service to you? How can we help you get to your destination? You love people through their sin and dysfunction. I, I'm so much more compassionate in the office than I am up here, I promise you, because uh, I love you, right? Up here, it's right, because you got to know the truth. But, but that truth gets processed in, in, across the color palette. Like, I'm, I'm for you. I'm for you. I love you. I want good for you, right? And you, So you're dealing with sin and dysfunction. You're dealing with family dysfunction. You're, you're trying to point people to resources so they can get the help they need. And at the same time, you're trying to move the whole body that includes those people and those pockets of dysfunction, those family units, and this person and that person don't like each other, and this department and that department that thinks the other one got more money than they did, and all these other kinds of things. And you're moving all of that forward, not really able to say a whole lot. Because again, if you confess a porn addiction to me, you're kind of trusting that I'm not going to let everybody know, aren't you? Because you should. Right? I'm going to, with, with rare exception, and rare exception means it's time to call law enforcement because you did something horrible and it's time to expose all of that. Pastors got to keep that stuff under wraps, which means this person doesn't know about this person. This person conversely doesn't know about this person. You, you know about them both, but you become aware of this dysfunction, that rebellion, that addiction, that disobedience. And so you're maintaining the confidence. You're working individually with people. And at the same time, doing everything you can do to keep those pockets of dysfunction from crashing into one another in a way that damages the whole church and its efforts to be faithful to the mission of Jesus. And all the while, you're also keenly aware, if you are a godly person who's attuned to the Spirit's move, of the sin in your own heart that might steer all of God's people in the wrong way. More keenly aware still of the spiritual forces behind the veil that are attacking you and aiming for you and aiming for God's people and aiming at those pockets of dysfunction. This is what it means to be a shepherd. Would our elders stand, staff, non-staff, just, just, I just want you to look. Come on, guys, get up. Yeah. The ones that are in here, at least. We got a few of them. These are the men who do that. Now, next week, they're going to come up front. We're going to pray for them because they need your prayers. We, we need your prayers. God, God, speed to all of you gentlemen. Thank you, my brothers. You can be seated. Uh, you, just, you just need to know that's what they do. They do it willingly. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this is what it means to be a shepherd. And so I, <laughs> you may be thinking to this point, so you wanna, you, you're trusting the Lord to call out some young men to join you in that? Pastor, that's gutsy. Some of you had that blue card out looking at it, and after I said all that, you're like, I'm just going to put that back in my pocket and 
I don't know. Hang with me because I'm going to tell you why it's worth it. Okay. I told you, I'm not going to oversell you, but I am going to tell you why it's worth it. Look at verse two again, exercise oversight. Peter continued, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this is how you do what you do. And then this is why we do it. When the chief shepherd appears, you, gentlemen, that was you. Others who God may be calling out five years from now, you're going to be in that role 15 years from now, you're going to be in that role. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, uh, there's a series of contrasts here. First one is not under compulsion, but willingly. All right? Paul alluded to this in 1 Timothy 3.1. If you desire the office of an overseer, you desire a good thing. There, there has to be a desire. That's another reason we don't do timeshare stuff here. We're not, we're not putting a lot of pressure on you. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to put a desire in your heart. And listen, I ran from that stuff for, let's see, 18, 19, 20. about three years, I said no to the Lord. And he allowed me to say no until he, you know, it was one of these moments. And now I'm a pastor. I never wanted to do this when I was a young adult. Never wanted. And now it's like, why did I say no to you? Right? And so it it takes time for some people. There's got to be a desire for the work. You got to want this to stay with it. After everything else I've said, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You got to want it. Because if you do it out of duty, if you do it because somebody pressured me to do it, if you do it because, well, nobody else will do it, your joy will dry up. Just as soon as the heat hits it, the whole church will then suffer for it. So you have to be somebody who says, yeah, I, I want this. But you need to know exactly what you want. Not for shameful gain, Peter goes on, but eagerly. What is it you want, all right? You want to be a prosperity pimp? You're in the wrong church. This can't be about money. You can't love money, power, influence, or your agenda more than you love Jesus, or you cannot do this job. The majority of our elders, in fact, don't get paid at all. They volunteer their time. Talk about insanity, right? They do that. As for those of us that are, then comes, well, well, what are our motivations? I mean, I'm incredibly thankful. You guys, ever since we came in 2016, there's never been a moment when this church has not taken care of me and my family, and I'm I'm grateful to you from that. And I'd also tell you that if I could, if I didn't have three kids and a mortgage, I'd do this for free. I love what I do. Well, most of it, about 85, 84% of it I do for free. Um, and I'll tell you, that's where most people are. I know I, and I've, I've referenced over the last several weeks, uh, scandal, scandals that have rocked the church, high profile pastors and denominational leaders that just were morally compromised to ship, shipwreck their faith and the faith of thousands of others. But the overwhelming majority of pastors are godly shepherds who love the body of Christ and they do not do this for shameful gain. They do it eagerly. I work with a large network of pastors for 11 years, 560 plus 
churches. I know pastors sometimes get a bad rap for being in it for the money. I get that there are a few greedy men who talk about private jets and all that nonsense and they make the rest of us look bad. Listen, they, those people, those men and women are what ambulance chasers are to attorneys and what quacks are to doctors. They are not the real thing. The overwhelming majority of people that I have seen in this work you're taking far better care of me than their churches are of them. And oftentimes that's not even the church's fault. They're just, the church is smaller. Maybe they're doing all they can. Most pastors work for less than what a public school teacher makes. And they do it because they love God's people. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Do you want this? And then ask yourself, why do you want it? And then finally, Peter says, not domineering, but being an example. You do not use your office to oppress. You do it to equip. You do it to empower. You do it to encourage, to demonstrate what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. Now, we have kind of a victim mentality in our culture right now. I don't know if you've noticed that. Everybody's a victim. So let me define oppression for a moment. Not getting your way is not oppression, okay? Listen, there is bona fide abuse that goes on out there. Let us not insult those who are the legitimate victims of it by claiming that anything and everything we don't like is some kind of oppression. Not getting your way is not oppression. Having your sin called out is not oppression. All right? Having your junk called out is not oppression. If you don't play well with others and we reassign you or we pull you out of a leadership role, we're not oppressing you. That's called good shepherding. Y'all still love me? Okay. That, that's not oppression. But the issue here is being an example. To be domineering is to act selfishly. You know, I get this question all the time from parents. Well, what's the appropriate way to, to discipline my child? And normally in our days, should I spank? Should I not spank? Well, here, here's the thing about that. I want to know what the motivation is. You may never lay a hand on your child's backside and you can still abuse them. Did you know that? On the other hand, you can wipe that backside and be a good parent. Amen, mom and dad? Yeah, yeah. The question is, why are you doing it? Right? If I'm just getting something off my chest, if I'm angry, if I'm wrathful, fathers, Ephesians 6 says, do not provoke your children to wrath. Why am I doing this? Is it because I'm frustrated? I'm going to take them take those frustrations out on a child that is under my charge and under my power, really? And that, that's, that's called abuse. Or am I doing what I'm doing for the good of the child? Right? This, is the, this goes to heart, goes to the heart. Why do we do what we do? Anybody in leadership that is domineering uh, is domineering because they're acting selfishly. They're only concerned for themselves. They're only concerned, maybe, maybe it's how they look, right? A lot of bad parenting comes out of, how's my kid going to make me look? Well, if you didn't ever want to look bad, you should have never had a kid, okay? They're going to scream in the middle of the grocery store aisle. They're going to puke on you at the most inopportune times. This is just called parenting, all right? And same thing when you're a leader. Don't be domineering. Now, watch this last phrase. Because if we do this right, here's the reward. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, that, that's a metaphor describing the victor's wreath. They called it a crown at the Greek games. 
What is that crown exactly? Well, in Philippians, Paul actually, speaking to the church there, says that they are his crown. He said, you, you are my joy and crown. The reward that, that comes from being a pastor, and I can tell you this from experience, just decades. Right? I, I remember one night, just, you know, we came out here. Covenant was a church that had experienced about 10 years of precipitous decline. We, wonderful people back then as well. But just, we, we had some issues we had to deal with, and, and, and a lot of the minutia of that I had to manage and try to work my way through. And, I, and when you're new, you don't have a lot of credibility, because why would you? Nobody knows who you are. Nobody really, you know, you, be, you haven't been tested yet. Hopefully, I've been here long enough that you guys can trust me a little bit more. But I understand, you know, when you're first here, and then on top of that, it's a revitalization work, so you're having to make a lot of hard decisions, and you just understand some people aren't going to understand. And so you're working through all of that, and on a few occasions, because I'm human and normal, I said, man, is this really worth it? And I remember driving on out to the western side of Jefferson County one night, and I sat on the back porch with one of our church members, talking to them about an extended family issue that was just tormenting them, and how it might be affecting the children, and basically without going into detail, it had to do with with, all right, there's sin in the extended family, and I don't want that sin affecting my children, but I want to teach my children to love, and I'm not quite sure where that is. I spent three hours with this guy. On the way home, I realized my tank was on empty, so I pulled into the, the old sheets out there in Shepherdstown, and I'm filling up, and I look up at the stars, and it's, it's, it's pleasant, actually, kind of like it was last night, really cool, and I can hear the crickets and I was just exhausted. You ever been there? You work 13, 14 hour a day and you're just like, you're not like I'm going home and I'm, I'm just gonna collapse if it's in the floor, if it's on the couch, wherever, like I'm going to, so I'm that exhausted. But I was also so filled. That's a good kind of tired, isn't it? That is a good kind of tired. After that experience, I thought, this is why I came. This is why God sent me here. What an honor, what a joy and a privilege to be able to do that and to get to see the kingdom displayed in the very people you shepherd. Guys, there's no greater reward in the world than to invest in another person like that, which is really what a pastor's job is. The lights, the mic, the cameras, don't let them fool you. We are not the stars of this show. We really are not. Our job is to midwife the kingdom of God in you. That, that's what we do. That's what we do. If we don't, we, you can have, listen, one of these days I'm going to stand before Jesus. You tell me, what do you think would impress him more? Hey, Lord, I grew this church, man. There were barely 500 people there when I got there. Now there's like 2,000 people by the time I died. And he says, yeah, but, but there there are almost 400,000 people in the tri-state area. What's the effect? How did you steward those 2,000? Well, they all came to hear me preach. Big whoop. All right? Or is it better to say, Lord, regardless of the amount of recognition I got, regardless of the amount of camera time I got, I don't know how those things don't break. They're aimed at me every single week. I... Here's what happened to the engineers and the doctors and the teachers and the research scientists and the first responders and the police officers. Man, here's the kingdom. Man, there were people made more like Jesus and the area more like the kingdom of God. 
That's the role. Not to change the world, but to give guidance to those who will change it. That's why we call teachers up and pray for them. Because they're going to change the world through their students. That's what's going to happen. You give guidance. I think of an 18th century story all the way back to 1784. There's this new young member of British Parliament. You may have heard of him. His name was William Wilberforce. And William was struggling. Those struggles were internal because he had just recently converted to Christianity. And as a result, he'd given up his gambling and his former life. He was trying to make sense of how his faith should affect his life going forward. But there were also external struggles in young William's life. Chief among them was his burden over the brutal slave trade in Great Britain. He wasn't quite sure what he could do about that, given the limited influence he had in the parliament. And so he sought out the guidance of a man who had been his childhood pastor. That man's name was John Newton. Newton had a history of his own. He, prior to his conversion, he had actually enriched himself by the slave trade. He would estimate later in his life that he had been personally responsible for the kidnapping and sale of more than 20,000 African souls kidnapped from their homes and brought to the islands for profit. It was Newton whose life was radically changed by Jesus who gave up the slave trade and would eventually write the song Amazing Grace four years before Wilberforce was born. And Wilberforce, as a little boy, sat constantly under John Newton's preaching, which included often scathing damning condemnations of the slave trade. And there were times as, an, as a young MP, Wilberforce just wanted to give up. It's too much politics, it's too hard that that preacher would push him to keep going until finally in 1801, the trade was effectively outlawed in Great Britain. Here's my big idea, all right? This is what I want you to hear, especially those of you who may feel called to a work like this. Slavery has not existed in England for over 200 years because a, a young member of parliament was pastored well. That's where it comes from. All right? I came here, among other reasons, because I believed, and I still do, that this place and these people are a sleeping giant. There's enough influence in this room and between this service and the next one to alter all of human history to the greater glory of God. That's why being well-led is such a necessity. I'm honored to be a part of that. And this morning, I just wonder how many men in front of me would like to join me? How many? That blue card is in the back of your, your seat back for a reason this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray and consider what the Lord may be calling us to do? Father, I do not call pastors this church does not call pastors. We confess at this point in the service that only you call people to ministry, be it on a volunteer basis, be it in some vocational capacity. But Lord, I believe with all my heart that one of the signs of health in a church is that when you call people out. And so today we want to focus specifically on that role of pastor. Lord, you are the chief shepherd. We thank you all nine of us for giving us the honor and the privilege of serving your bride. But we recognize we will not be here forever. And so we thank you also for the opportunity to lay the opportunity in front of other people and knowing and believing that you are the chief shepherd who loves your sheep, that you will raise them up so that there will be godly men. 
leading the way long after I am gone from this place. Father, we ask you to give that to us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.